The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, very warm welcome to Scorebox. We're live in Hong Kong, Nansha and London. And these are your headlines. A Hong Kong University campus standoff between anti-government protesters and police is well into its third day. Whilst the city's leader, Carrie Lam, urges a peaceful solution. They have to stop violence, give up their weapons and come up peacefully and take the instructions from the police. U.S. stocks post fresh record highs, but end the day, little changed after CNBC learns that Chinese officials are pessimistic about an early signature on a trade deal. We've been gathering opinions here at East Tech West in Nansha. From pathetic to positive, President Trump touts a good and cordial meeting with Fed Chair Jerome Powell whilst the central bank insists policy decisions will remain non-political. Airbus logs $30 billion in deals from Emirates and Air Arabia at the Dubai Air Show after it gets off to a slow start. While the Emirates chairman tells CNBC exclusively, this year's expo will be strong even if total orders don't reach previous heights. We look at it, still will be an excellent deal by the end of uh, the, the five days of at the air show in terms of, uh, of number. But you cannot expect sometime to be all the time it's in hundreds of, of, of billions. It's really lovely to see you this Tuesday morning. There's so much going on around the world, so much going on in the US. An extraordinary meeting, a pointless meeting, a pointed meeting between Jerome Powell and President Trump. So much going on, but as well, uh, down in Hong Kong, there's a, a lot of um, quite troubling events, including around 100 anti-government protesters still barricaded inside a Hong Kong university, which has been under siege for three straight days. The Chinese territory's leader, Carrie Lam, has called on the demonstrators to come out peacefully as police arrests reach 400. Martin, uh, Martin Sung, is near the Polytechnic University. Martin, I was listening to all kinds of reports about this um, on the ground in Hong Kong. We don't know if there's 100 protesters in there. Some are saying there could be uh, several hundred in there as well. And there's been attempted breakouts as well, but the police repelling a lot of these protesters, these students with tear gas and forcing them back into the building as well. But there has been calls from Carrie Lam as well for a softly, softly approach. Martin. Yeah, it's been quite a few days, uh, Stephen. Good morning, uh, Europe. We are just outside where there have been three days of violent clashes between police and students holed up under siege at one of Hong Kong's leading universities uh, here. And I'll get to the Carrie Lam in just a bit, but I want to take you first on a bit of a morbid tour of uh, where we are right now. If the camera can follow me along, you'll see probably just uh, to uh, my left here, uh, this is the main Cross Harbor Tunnel, or at least used to be. Uh, one of the main ways that Hong Kongers would get back and forth between the island, Hong Kong Island, and also Kowloon, where we are now. That's been totally trashed. It cannot be used. You'll see the kiosks 
The toll booths are inoperable. There's debris all over the, the lanes. Uh, this is the result of what the protesters have been doing. Just above that, you'll probably notice a bridge. That is the scene where most of the clashes have been taking place. And that mountain of debris, broken furniture, etc., those are the barricades that the students have been using to try and keep the police out uh, when they try and storm uh, the campus. And you'll probably see a couple of policemen on standby as well, although right now there's a very uneasy uh, I guess, truce or peace and almost an eerie silence after what we've seen over the last uh, three days. And as we continue uh, panning to my right, I'll show you what is known as Hong Kong Poly, one of 78 universities uh, in Hong Kong. This is the scene of the siege, the last 72 hours, coming to 72 hours or three days. It's quite a big campus, all red brick buildings. And as we continue along, you'll probably see some Chinese characters scrawled on the front of the building. I'll tell you what they say. It says five demands, not one less. And if you recall, uh, that's been the chant for the protesters for months now, uh, since June. The key demand, one of their key demands has been, of course, an independent inquiry into excessive use of force on the part of the police. Uh, uh, there have been a lot of allegations and the perception that the police may have been uh, a little too heavy handed. Uh, with the protesters. So they're not standing down on that one. That was an issue addressed earlier today by Hong Kong's new chief of police. First day on the job, he said, look, the protests, if they are to end, it cannot be done by the police alone. Now, this echoes and this repeats what's become sort of the government line that, look, if the situation is to resolve itself, the protesters have to de-escalate. The protesters need to uh, stop the violence not addressing sufficiently, according to the protesters themselves and to a, a lot of the public here, allegations of police heavy-handedness and perhaps overly violent execution of what they're trying to do. Uh, now, the key part uh, of today, the key takeaway was Carrie Lam, who held her weekly press conference this morning, and this was surprising. She took, as you suggested, Steve, uh, a softly, softly uh, approach. She said, basically, if these students hold up here at Hong Kong Poly, surrender, if they leave peacefully, they will not be arrested. But the caveat here is that's only if they are underage and still not clear where that age line is drawn. According to Lam, police have told her that 600 students have left the campus already. Of that 600, 200 of them have been below the age of 18. So it's important to remember that these are just kids here. They're secondary school students. They are literally high school students. She went on to say that about 100 remain. But again, the police have been in and out of the campus. They managed to break through. Uh, they arrest a couple of kids, drag them out literally, and then they're back to the standoff. So if they have not been inside the campus for a sustained period long enough to do an actual headcount, how do they know that there are exactly 100 students left? I mean, if I were to hazard a guess, I would suggest there are probably more uh, behind there. But again, for what it's worth, the approach seems to be aimed at trying to diffuse the tension, a softly, softly approach, Steve, as you describe it. And this is a very sharp contrast to the latest rhetoric from Beijing. No response so far to uh, what Carrie Lam said this morning, but a couple of days ago, you'll probably remember, Xi Jinping himself, the president of China, came out and said that perhaps a harder crackdown is necessary in Hong Kong. That was underlined by an editorial in the China Daily, which is the Chinese Communist Party's mouthpiece. 
saying that Hong Kong's approach so far, the government's approach so far, has been soft and perhaps a harsher approach is necessary. So points to Carrie Lam for now, but again, how the students will respond and how long this uneasy peace can last is a very open question because unlike other sieges and clashes at other Hong Kong universities, which have happened in just the last couple of weeks, it's not just at night when the, when the police uh, try and uh, make their assaults to clear the grounds. At Hong Kong Poly, just behind me, this has been going on during daytime hours as well. You never know when it's going to happen. So we wait and watch. Back to you. Muddy, thank you so much. Terrific coverage. And thank you very much for setting the scene for us, talking through the events that have been unfolding that live on the ground in Hong Kong, which, of course, has been a key risk event for many investors at this point. I want to move you on to some earnings that have been crossing from Julius Baer. As we talk about Swiss banking, this is a stock that's done particularly well this year. It's been up 32%. Uh, so let's just dive into the detail to see whether there's a justification for the size of that bounce in the share price this year. Uh, the latest around its CT1 capital ratio, this is strengthened at 13.9%. So that's towards the top end of the range for its peers. Share buyback program will be launched on the 20th of November. It's expected to run until the end of February 2021. Don't forget a lot of investors have been talking about share buyback supporting the market. So another initiative here by another corporate. Julius Baer's goodwill on its investment in Kairos will be particularly or partially impaired. This will lead to a non-cash charge <coughs> of 90 million euros and that surprises me because this was a fairly good arm of the business uh, helping with investments in some of the emerging markets in particular. Uh, Julius Baer, results of the cost reduction program started to materialise in the second half of this year. The group achieved adjusted cost income ratio of just over 70%. Overall gross margin in the first 10 months of this year was just above 82 basis points. The group margin in July to October, so the recent three-month period, was moderately lower than the first half of 2019, so not going in the right directions. We talk about negative rates. Annualised net new money growth for the first 10 months of the year was slightly less than 3%. And uh, the environment, and these comments are very important as we talk, take a look at what the C-suite is battling at the moment. They say in a challenging environment, operating performance and capital generation remain robust. They also uh, have been talking about the assets under management that's tallied uh, up, uh, it's up 10% to 422 billion. There is a slight it. problem here though, isn't there? And, and everything you said, spot on, you know, it's, it's a very well run company, but it's a very highly rated company. Mm. And if I said to you on price to book that UBS trades at 0.78, now let me just mathematically, you'll like this, good maths is early in the morning, times that by two which comes to 1.56 price to book. Julius Baer trades at 1.53. So to the second decimal, Julius Baer trades twice the valuation on a price to book of UBS. Isn't that extraordinary? I'll give you one more extraordinary fact as well. UBS year to date is now 1.7%. This company is up 32%. So you've had virtually a 33, 34% outperformance on a stock which is rated twice as much on a price-to-book ratio mm. of UBS. That is a very, very, very high benchmark for a European financial institution. I'm not saying it's not a great bank. It clearly is, and it's clearly very well rated. The problem is the expectations when you're up 32%, you're trading twice as much as your biggest peer on the Swiss market as well. The expectations are very high, and when you've got such 
so dare I say it, tough cost income ratios. And I think you mentioned over 70%. The benchmark's very high. So it does potentially induce a bit of volatility into the stock at the higher levels. Is there a lesson here about where a company stands at uh, the starting point after a big sell-off? And you may recall, of course, when we saw the volatility late last year, this was a stock that was very much beaten up, very steep decline south. So the starting point gave it some run rate to outperform some of the peers. And perhaps that's a lesson. Next time you see a shakedown of markets, start raking over some of the names and where you see the recovery potential, perhaps that's where the appetite should be. That's some significant management changes as well. Don't forget, yep. they've gone from um, Kaladi to Hodler to the current management team. So very it's, interesting. It's been a revolving C-suite at a number of those Swiss banks this year. Yes, it has. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. So the mood in Beijing around a trade deal is, quote, pessimistic. OK, I thought we were optimistic yesterday. Oh, we're pessimistic today. That's according to a government source who told CNBC China is troubled by President Trump's reluctance to roll back tariffs. I thought we were optimistic yesterday. We were. We were, weren't we? OK, the US has granted Huawei a fresh 90-day extension. There you go. That's supposed to be um, optimistic, isn't it? Anyway, allowing the US firms to continue doing business with the blacklisted Chinese company. US Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said the decision was made to prevent customers in rural areas uh, from being left in the dark. I know about being in a rural area left in the dark on telecommunications, trust me. Anyway, however, Ross warned Huawei it would continue to be, quote, rigorously monitored to prevent any threat to national security. Well, Jeff and Christine are at CNBC's magnificent East Tech West conference in Nansha in China. And whatever's going on in the mood music, these two are always optimistic. Good morning to you both. Yeah, very good morning, Steve. And I think the language was constructive, wasn't it? And that was a Xinhua report into a telephone conversation Mm. that took place on the Saturday. You know what? We don't get um, a united front from Washington when it comes to these talks around trade. I wonder if we're starting to get disparate voices now coming out of Beijing around these trade talks. Just a thought, but it was a Xinhua story over the weekend. And here we are with a source to CNBC suggesting pessimism. So I think you pays your money and you takes your pick. But just on the Huawei story, we had a terrific uh, conversation this morning with John Stadzinski from PIMCO. Um, Christine was involved in that conversation. I later spoke to him on a panel. And on the issue of Huawei and the progress it's making, he had some interesting points about just how unique the Huawei position is with regard to Chinese tech and U.S. tech. Let's just hear what he had to say. Huawei is unique. Huawei is 30 years old. They've had time to go through their own strategy. They've developed their own culture. They have their own generations of, um, of, of staff and graduates, and they have clear footprint. And uh, they also have now, and they're benefiting from, I think they're 37% of the mobile phone market here in China. So Huawei is an example of what, remember, Apple's 30 plus years old and some of the other big companies. So, but China does not have a lot of Huawei's. 
and the United States has many Huaweis. So it's going to take another five or 10 or 15 years to replicate what Huawei has done. And Jeff, I think John was clearly alluding to the fact that, you know, um, China still has a lot to catch up on when trying to close the technology gap uh, with the U.S. Because John said that in the U.S. Mm. there was a Silicon type valley culture mm. that's been put in place, something that is very hard for China to replicate. There's only one Huawei in China, but there are many of these small Huaweis or many of these Huaweis in the U.S. And it's fostering a culture of innovation, uh, a culture of innovation and, and, and you know, uh, development in the U.S. itself. And China is clearly trying to catch up. Uh, it's going to take a while. So that's interesting because a lot of the messaging here is that in some particular areas of technology, um, China has enjoyed a leapfrog advantage because it doesn't have legacy systems. And telecoms is one area where you do see Huawei having an advantage around 5G compared to equivalent uh, U.S. carriers. The interesting story for me, though, around the Huawei over the last 24 hours is, you know, I sat down with the chairman, mm -hmm. Liang Hua, and I asked him about that report that there was going to be an extension mm -hmm. for U.S. companies selling equipment into Huawei. Then we get the extension. Then this story is often running again here. But somehow squaring the extension with the trade pessimism and with the issue of national security mm -hmm. It doesn't quite work for me. There's something missing in this story or miscommunicated. Yeah, uh, and you asked the question whether, you know, Huawei has had any contact with U.S. Um, regulators, and mm. his answer was no. And that, to me, was really surprising because you are the, the company at the center of, of, of the controversy. So, mm. I mean, there's been no communication. Something is wrong here when it comes to disseminating information, mm. you mm. know. Mm. Um, so. Well, I mean, the interesting follow-up on that is supposedly the lawyers are talking. So we, we've got our people talking to your people, yeah. but the principals are not actually communicating head-to-head. -head. Um, we've got some fascinating panels taking place here at East Tech West, as well as those conversations we're having with people like John. Um, let's just dip into Arjun's panel here on the future of transport with Didi Chuxing. Only 2%, which means there's still huge potential for growth. Uh, so our data also show, like, uh, since uh, 2019, this year, we were only able to fulfill 65% of the user requests. Like, 35% of the requests are not fulfilled due to a number of issues like the limitation of supply and the matching efficiency. There's still a huge room for improvement. And uh, the requirement of our users are getting more and more diversified. So I think there are a huge space for continue to grow the ride-hailing business, uh, which is the core uh, of Didi, uh, to create more user value. And also, at the same time, we continue to grow our international footprint. So we are operating in seven countries across Asia Pacific and America. Oh, as we think, actually, the number just went up to eight. Uh, so today, we officially announced uh, we're launching our service in Costa Rica. Uh, so the users in Costa Rica, uh, in five cities, including capital, uh, that covers over 65% of the population can use our DD service. Actually, the team just sent over the, the screenshot to me. So we're, we're, we're in Costa Rica. Hello, Didi's in Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Um, mm -hmm. So, so Tiger, just, just to, just to mm -hmm. drive home this point. So as you scale 
with the right hailing business and you continue to grow and you see that demand and penetration increase, you feel that that is Didi's path to becoming a profitable company, not, say, financial services or food delivery or other areas? I think we'll continue to innovate in the other areas. Like we, uh, we have this uh, automobile alliance. Uh, so we have partnership with over 30 companies in the automotive industry. Uh, so we work with them to help them manage their fleets and build electrical vehicle networks. And so the partnership also including like over 100 uh, like uh, energy, energy suppliers. We think it's important also for us to uh, create this cross-sector uh, partnership uh, because we think ride-sharing will change the structure of the, the industry. And just as you think about your future, when, when does the IPO come? So I'm a tech person, so I don't have a, a timeline. Uh, as I mentioned, I think at this point uh, that the penetration is only like 2%. Uh, uh, we still have need to continue to improve our safety capabilities and uh, continue to create user value, and that is the focus for us at this point. Let's talk a little bit about Didi's future when it comes to technology, mm -hmm. because you recently uh, spun off the driverless car um, unit as well. Uh, what are the long-term term plans there? When do you think autonomous vehicles are going to have an impact on Didi and its users? When do you see them coming to the market? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, as you know, our autonomous driving unit became an independent company this year. Uh, so we think uh, the value of autonomous driving are in safety as well as in efficiency. Uh, uh, what I mentioned about safety is uh, it can entirely eliminate the human errors. Uh, so perhaps you, you don't know the number, like over 1.35 million people die on the road every year, and autonomous driving can help that. On the other hand, uh, like today, we were only able to fulfill 65% of the user requests, and the autonomous vehicles is an effective way to fill in the gap of supply and demand. Uh, so I think the autonomous vehicle is going to roll out in a staged fashion, perhaps first in some geofenced areas, and uh, autonomous vehicles and human-driven uh, vehicles are going to coexist. Uh, uh. And when do you expect to see the first autonomous vehicles on the Didi We platform? are going to launch uh, a robo-taxi service in Shanghai very soon. Okay. This year? Uh, this year, very soon, and the users can just hail a self-driving vehicle uh, through the Didi app. Great. And, and I want to ask you one final question as we wrap this up again about the future of your company because mm -hmm. I was stood outside and there's a passenger drone there from a company called Ehang and Uber have also talked about flying taxis as well as potentially the future. So what's Diddy's uh, views on, on flying passenger drones as a tech form of transport? Are you actively working on developing this technology? Okay, so like from my perspective, uh, I'm in the right-heading business. Uh, what I'm really excited about is the future of ground transportation. So speaking of the future, I'm really excited about, I think, two things that can become re reality in the next five, ten years. Uh, so first, uh, first, I think ride-sharing will be able to return free space and time to cities and the citizens. So uh, let's say, Arjun, I want to uh, have a coffee with you like in the morning, uh, but uh, I have to drive, and then I need to worry about where to find uh, a parking lot, like while we are having coffee, and I have to worry about whether the meter expired or not. So that's a lot of stress. Uh, I think uh, the ride sharing will become very reliable 
and uh, you, uh, more comf comfortable experience uh, with the help of uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, so um, do you know that uh, how much land the city has to plan uh, to build parking lots? In some cities, the number is as high as 40%. So 40% of the land are used to build parking structures. But instead, we could use the land to build parks, like playgrounds for our children and schools, uh, so that this is a more friendly space for us to, to live in. Uh, I, I'm really excited about the future with the help of technology. Um, and the other thing I'm really excited about is, uh, I think in five years, we're going to entirely solve the door-to-door -door ground transportation problem, like every Chinese New Year. Uh, so this year, nearly like three billion people are on the road, like going home during the Chinese New Year. That's per perhaps the largest migration in human history. And Didi helped transport a lot of the passengers. The majority use ground transportation, uh, long-distance buses or trains, but it was not uh, very uh, enjoyable experience. There are a lot of frustration, kind of uh, get uh, the right schedule, have to do a lot of transfers. Uh, I really hate transfers. Um, I think the revolution of uh, technology ride sharing will enable us to offer a very affordable and comfortable door-to-door -door ground transportation to our end users. So I don't have to worry about all the like stress point. It's entirely a stress-free experience. I, I really want like DD to become the, the synonym of door-to-door -door ground transportation in five years. Tiger, thanks so much yeah. for your insights. Very fascinating. Thank you for the insights into Didi's current business mm. and where it's going in the future. This was Tiger Chia from Didi. Round of applause for our wonderful guest. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we'll take it back from Arjun and that conversation with Didi Chuxing, uh, which, of course, uh, for those not familiar in Europe with that name, is effectively a Chinese Uber yes. and has beaten Uber out of some of the markets in this part of the world. Yeah, uh, Uber clearly cannot get into the market, so uh, Chuxing is in there. Uh, but bear in mind, uh, you know, it's a big market. So really, if you are a ride hailer in China, you don't really need to go elsewhere because you have the market all to yourself, isn't it? Pretty much. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.